Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, LaToya Ruby Frazier. The Renaissance Society in Chicago is showing LaToya Ruby Frazier The Last Cruise. The exhibition features Frazier's newest body of work. It focuses on the United Auto Workers members at General Motors' Lordstown, Ohio plant. The facility, which had produced automobiles for over 50 years, was recently, quote, unallocated by General Motors, a term of art that indicates that the plant has effectively been shut down. Frazier's pictures present members of United Auto Workers Local 1112 and tell the story of their lives and the community they've built in northeastern Ohio. On September 14th, the day the exhibition opened in Chicago, the UAW's current national contract with the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, ended. The UAW instigated a strike at GM plants. It's still on as of this taping on September 25th. The strike is already the longest strike against General Motors since 1970. LaToya Ruby Frazier is a Chicago-based artist whose work most often examines the ways in which corporations have impacted the lives of workers, their families, and their communities. Her work has been featured in solo exhibitions at numerous museums in France, Luxembourg, Belgium, and across the United States. She was the recipient of a 2015 MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and has also received awards from the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation and USA Artists. A couple quick things before we get on to this week's show. On October 15th, I'll be taping a live audience program with the artist Robin O'Neill at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. She'll sign books from 5.30 to 6.30, and the taping is after that. Also, please, please rate and review us, five-star reviews are best, wherever you download the show. It helps new people find the program. LaToya Ruby Frazier for the full hour, after the break. Opening October 8th at the Getty Center, Manet and Modern Beauty, the first exhibition ever to explore the last years of painter Edward Manet's short life. Stylish portraits, luscious still lifes, delicate pastels and watercolors, and vivid cafe and garden scenes convey Manet's elegant Parisian social world and reveal his growing fascination with fashion, flowers, and the contemporary trappings of femininity. Learn more about this major exhibition and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. Don't miss the final days of Ed Hardy, Deeper Than Skin, closing October 6th at San Francisco's De Young Museum. The first museum retrospective of the tattoo icon, it traces the evolution of tattooing from its subculture status to a fine art form through a survey of sketches, prints, three-dimensional objects, and paintings, including a 500-foot scroll that winds its way through the galleries. Discover the art of the tattoo with Ed Hardy, Deeper Than Skin, Visit deyoungmuseum.org to reserve tickets. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a 20-year survey of the work of Robin O'Neill. Organized by the Modern's associate curator, Allison Hurst, the exhibition Robin O'Neill, We the Masses explores the artist's fruitful career from 2000 to the present and includes major multi-panel drawings, signature works of graphite on paper, collages, and the animated film We the Masses, 2011. This in-depth presentation is the first to examine O'Neill's formal and conceptual developments over the past two decades. On view in Fort Worth, Texas, October 18th, 2019 through February 9th, 2020. And we're back. LaToya Ruby Frazier, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thanks for having me on. When did you become aware of General Motors' planned closure, but not a closure, of its Lordstown, Ohio plant? And how quickly after you heard about it did it come to interest you as a possible subject? 
Well, like the rest of the country, I saw in the mass media that General Motors was going to cease operations in five plants. And as soon as I saw that in the news, I immediately had a, a gut reaction to it because, you know, I'm born and raised from a steel mill town that went through massive closures and setbacks. So I knew immediately that this was going to ha have a devastating and catastrophic effect. And I wanted to take action immediately by going to Lordstown to be there. And so the first thing that I did when I saw the news was I reached out to the New York Times, asked them if they were planning on covering it, if they were not, if they would partner with me to cover it for my solo exhibition at the Renaissance Society here in Chicago. So the first iteration was going to be me taking on the mass media platform to make sure that the United Auto Workers' voices weren't cut out because, you know, in the mass media, they're not really going to be adequately or fully represented. That conversation, once it hits the news, becomes more about General Motors as a company, its stocks, its shares, and it doesn't get into the intimate story of the lives of those workers and the options that they were given by the company. So I didn't need to think twice about it. When I saw it, I just knew do something about it and get on the story quick. We'll talk about a couple of the pictures in just a moment. But before we do, I know there's an exhibition up at the Renaissance Society. Of course, we'll have links to it and images uh, from it that we'll be discussing on manpodcast.com. But do you consider the series and the project done, or is it ongoing as the situation in Lordstown continues? Tyler, my work is never done. <laughs> and this is why I never refer to my work as a project. This is my life's work and my life's mission. You know, being born and raised out of Braddock, Pennsylvania, I grew up next to Andrew Carnegie's steel mill. That is my entire life. I've ingested it, breathed it in. It's in my DNA. It's in my bones. I know that that's what my life, the purpose is for, and it's the kind of meaningful work that I want to make. Someone needs, in a contemporary art form, to take up the mantle for working class people in this country and around the globe. My mission is clear. It's to have left behind in the little short lifespan that we human beings have, to have left behind a archive about the beauty and the diversity of working class people in the world that transcends race, class, gender, nationality, religion, citizenship, sexuality, all the isms that have always divided us and all the differences that politicians and corporations have used to oppress us and keep us apart. Let's jump into the Lordstown work. I want to start with what I think is the most remarkable picture in the series. The title is Sharia Duncan, UAW Local 1112, at her kitchen table with her mother, Waldine Arrington, her daughter, Olivia, and her husband, Jason, 23 years in the GM Lordstown Complex trim and paint shop, Austintown, Ohio, 2019. It's a... a, a striking picture of um, a mother and daughter uh, looking at us and a father and daughter looking across the table of each other. First, how did you come to know or select the Duncans and Ms. Arrington? So it's important that viewers understand how I got intimately involved and started showing up to workers' homes. Initially, when I arrived to the Union Hall in Lordstown, in order to have access 
to local 11, 12 and 17, 14, they had to take a motion and a vote to allow me to be there. It's forbidden for an outsider to ever come into the union hall, especially during meetings to meet members. So I had to be voted in and they decided unanimously the day that I arrived to allow me to have full access. Once that occurred, I then set up you know, at a table so they could visibly see me when they came in the hall, you know, my equipment, all the research that I was doing there, because they have a massive archive of photographs and newspapers and documents going all the way back to 1966. So members were coming in and they would see me and they would engage with me and talk with me, just like they would talk with the people at the transition center or benefit reps or unemployment reps. So I really became a part of the fabric of the union hall, you know, to the point that I might as well had had a, you know, a position in theirs because it became so familiar to see me there. And it's important for the viewers to understand this strategy was up until March 6th to be at the union hall and outside of the plant because people were still going to work. The shift occurred after March 6th when the last crews came off the line where they were, could no longer go to work. And so that it, what it became was the necessity for me to start going to their homes, right? You couldn't get up anymore at 4.30 a.m. and report and clock in by 6.30 on the assembly line because there's no more, there's not a product there. You can't go. And so this is how I start ending up in workers' homes with their families. And what was beautiful about it is, you know, they are so attached to each other and emotionally involved in each other's lives, Right. Thematically, this work is about family. And so what you have is the family at the plant, the family at the union hall, and then the actual bloodline families at home. And so once I started coming to someone's home like Sharia and Jason Duncan, it was normal for them to have other family members. Right. So Sharia called her mother, Waldine, to come over and sit with us. Jason called his brother, Aaron, to come over and sit with us and for me to interview all of them. And this was a common occurrence that if I would go to one couple's house or one individual's house, several other co-workers and retirees would show up. And that's how it became a very intimate intergenerational series of photographs and interviews and encounters. Community building is, is key to the work, and, and, and we'll get to it a little bit later on. The, the thing that really strikes me about this picture visually is that it seems to me to be a very kind of Renaissance painting, Renaissance portraiture informed picture. There's the grid on the floor that leads us into the picture. There's the grid on the table that leads us to the central couple, Duncan and her mother, Ms. Arrington. There's a, a little bit of light, an actual bulb, if we still call them bulbs, or LED. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to work on the language here. I'm at the top middle of the painting as if the archangel is 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 arriving on the scene. Uh, I, I assume you composed this with all that in mind. How and why did you come to bring those Renaissance ideas to this picture? Well, you're absolutely correct. All last summer, I was in Rome for two months. And I specifically was in Rome on a Bernini and Caravaggio hunt. So I went all over Rome looking for as many Caravaggios that I could see in person, especially Caravaggio, because Caravaggio would be, to me, a painter who 
was already the precursor to Photoshop because of the way Caravaggio went about his compositions, right? So when you're looking at the figures and the way that their bodies are entangled or relating to each other or the narratives that they put forth, they're not all necessarily there in one shot, right? He's painting one figure, one group at a time and layering them. And then, of course, those underpaintings are so rich uh, and you have this amazing contrast and tonal range happening. So... I think there were about 12 Caravaggios I was able to see in Rome, I think is all they had there. And then also the thing that I love about Caravaggio is he's paying homage and honor to people who are the undesirables in society. And the fact that he could subvert that kind of power, right, being commissioned by powerful people in Rome and the wealthy in Rome, but yet the subject matter are people who are, you know, theater people or street people or poor people. And then they're also reoccurring characters. I mean, this is the thing that, you know, really speaks to me in that work. For me personally, workers, like men, women, and children of working class backgrounds are my heroes and sheroes. To me, they are like God. And so it is important in my work to really illuminate them and show them in their true dignified essence and beauty with as much regal power as possible, but also still being very subtle and subdued about it. There's one other uh, Renaissance element in the picture I should have mentioned. The blinds behind Ms. Duncan and her mother recall the textiles in pictures uh, of, of, of Mary in the garden or Mary near the garden, where there's a textile between Mary and, and the material world. How did the Duncans and Ms. Arrington come to be cited where they are in in their house? Did you pick that or did they? Well, I think when it comes to being socially engaged with people, especially with families and being a visitor coming over, it's natural to either be in the living room or at the kitchen table. And I think the beautiful nod that's happening in the image, them being at the kitchen table is like a new take on Carrie Mae Weems' kitchen table series. And, you know, Carrie is a dear friend and a mentor of mine. And so I know one of the things that Carrie had always emphasized to me when I was her student at Syracuse University is she always kind of encouraged me to take on the matters of class issues. You know, she just said to me one day, you know, I wonder why no one makes work, you know, overtly about class. And that always stayed with me. And in my work, race and class are always going to be intertwined. And I think this is what's plaguing our society and our civilization is our failure to understand that race and class are are bound together. And you can't acknowledge one without the other. And really, holistically, the United States is a caste system. It's a social caste system. And so it's important to have that power of the unity in the family intergenerationally coming together at the table where you know that you have to be a member to be intimately accepted at that table. So that's also a a way of socially understanding their acceptance of me and willingness to have me in their intimate space in their home during a very difficult, tumultuous time. But then also the intergenerational pride. I mean, Waldine Arrington is one of the first UAW Black women in the workforce for General Motors. She's one of the first ones. When she was hired, they didn't even have a bathroom for women. And they would have to go together as as a group 
you know, on the floor to go to the bathroom as a group to stand guard so they can go use the bathroom. And so she's, you know, a, a, a really important, what she symbolically represents is that kind of camaraderie and women in the workplace and breaking those barriers. And the fact that she was very protective of Sharia. Sharia even goes on to tell me she didn't know that her mother had people watching her. I think like one of the funniest stories from Waldine is, is that when Jason, when she found out Jason was interested in her daughter, she told me that she would walk over to Jason's area and just watch him, you know, for 15, 20 minutes to see if she liked him for her daughter. <laughs> His area at the plant? <laughs> exactly. Uh. <laughs> I mean, like, so, well, Dean was fiercely protective of her daughter. And at the same time, Sharia, you know, people have to understand, like, working class people, their parents are their heroes. And so, you know, Sharia reveres her mother so much and she wanted to be like her mother and honor her mother, you know, to the point that she joined the union and was very like participated in the women's committee because her mother had such a big reputation and everybody knew her and she didn't ever want to, you know, let her down. So, you know, I mean, this is really powerful, the presence of women and black women and that kind of solidarity and a mother looking after her child like a cub. And Waldine specifically said, you know, it's a big city in there, but everyone knew that that was someone's child. And so if anything ever happened, it wasn't just the parent. It was also the entire workforce in the community looking out for each other's children. And so that's, you know, really important and why I'm layering that in the image, how you see those two sitting shoulder to shoulder at the head of the table. And the other dynamic that's occurring at that table is that Sharia has a different seniority from Jason. And so what I was worried about while listening to them and meeting them and photographing them and why I made the portrait the way that I did is there was a possibility that Jason and Sharia wouldn't be able to transfer to the same place, right? Being in the UAW union workforce with different seniority, once they start giving you involuntary letters, they go through the list based on how many years you've put in at the plant. And there was a massive gap between the two of them. And so Jason wasn't sure what was going to happen. And so the conversation at the kitchen table with them was about, you know, they put in for Arlington, Texas, but they hadn't heard back for months. No one was hearing anything from Arlington, Texas. And so they needed to start to go through the next way, their next option. Okay. If we can't get in for Arlington, and Jason would have been forced first because he has the lowest amount of seniority. If he was forced, then Sharia had to make the decision as to if she was going to leave behind her pension all the years she put in and just move to wherever he was forced to or see if they would accept her there. But it's very rare. And this is what Americans don't understand when Mary Barr says, but I gave them a transfer. Yeah, you gave them a transfer. But what about couples? What about husband and wives that have different seniority? What I can say, ultimately, in the end, what happened with them is they were able to stay together, the entire family, except Olivia had to leave Austin town and leave behind her, you know, her grandmother, her grandparents, right? So the family leaves, but Waldine and her husband and Jason's parents, you know, they don't get to go with them. And so it breaks the family intergenerationally in that sense where the grandparents are now still in the Youngstown area, but they have all moved on.
you mentioned Mary Barr. She's the CEO of General Motors. Before a, a couple, I ask a couple more things about the picture. Your practice in Lordstown has been to interview the subjects of, of your pictures. I gather you're building uh, an archive formally or informally. What will happen to it? I'm curious what will happen with it, too. <laughs> so uh, right now, in its form, in, in all its beauty and its structure right now here at the Renaissance Society, this exhibition is actually a monument. It's a monument for the workers. And what I mean is, you know, when you enter the Ren and you see this, this is the first time in my practice where I've been able to take gelatin silver prints and instead of framing them and nailing them onto a wall... I intentionally built a sculptural apparatus. So when you enter the space, it's it's half holy, half assembly line. The space is painted the two-tone General Motors logo colors. The assembly line is this massive orange structure, which is actually the carriages that carried the last cruise. It carried the cruise vehicle through the entire mile-long facility as workers put it together. There are 21 of them. They weigh approximately 150 pounds each. So this is a massive sculpture and a massive installation. So for me, I'm excited and proud because for years I've been obsessed with wanting to build a monument to workers, a monument that honors workers. I've, you know, from my hometown of Pittsburgh, to as far as East Germany and to Eisenhüttenstadt, like all the way to Belgium, to the Borinage, where the coal miners are. I've been to sites that are literally sites only paying homage and honor to industrial capitalists. And I think it's about time we saw in this country monuments and statues erected for workers and everyday people. And so right now it's living as a monumental sculpture at the Wren. It should travel to other places. In fact, it should travel to every state. Everyone needs to see and hear what these workers have to say and why, you know, unions are important to the social fabric of this country. Ultimately, you know, I'm still, you know, in the early stages of my career, but one would hope that I would have enough success like anybody else who is able to amass large amounts of money where I would be able to have property where I could really have a, a real museum for workers. That's what I daydream about. Like, if I could ever build my own institution and my own museum, I would want to build it to honor workers and workers' thoughts. One of the really striking things about this picture that, 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 that we've been kind of orienting our conversation about so far is that it features two people looking at us frontally, looking right into the lens of the camera, and two people um, we see in profile. You, you quite often in your pictures, of course, have people looking right at us. But this combination of people looking at us and uh, another person or persons in the picture being in profile is a reprisal of uh, a, te a technique, an idea that is perhaps most familiar from your 2008 picture of you and your mother. Why does that combination of frontal and side profile work for you, whether whether art historically or otherwise or all of the above? Well, I think that it's formally alluding to the power dynamic and the familial relationship and the tensions there. Again, the idol of the plant and being forced to move is impacting all four of them differently. And in this case, 
there was a situation where Jason was forced to take his daughter, Olivia, to work. General Motors' slogan is family first. And we can see now, especially the way that the events have rolled out, that it's anything but family first. And that it's not only dismantling the family of a union in 21st century union busting, it's also maliciously ripping real families apart. And so Jason was explaining to me that he was being reprimanded at work because one day at the last minute, Sharia was told that she had to stay longer at work and Jason actually needed to report to work. They were on different shifts. Olivia was coming home from school and needed to be picked up and both their parents weren't available. They were away. And so Jason had to come to work late and bring his daughter. That was the only option he had. And what's beautiful about it, even though management gave him a hard time, it was his coworkers, right, his family that said, hey, you know, leave her here in this break room, the room where the workers gather, and we'll look after her and you go head on the line and work. And it's that kind of power dynamic, right? Like Jason has to look after his daughter. He has to look after his family and provide, but yet he has lower seniority or management is, you know, reprimanding him for trying to protect his daughter and the company's not taking into consideration that these workers have school children, right? People don't have this kind of free accessibility to move about. And there really is a network and a family safety net that allows them to function and to be able to take pride in doing their job. And I just think it's ironic that a company that, you know, has its membership discount and its slogan line is family first and it's for American families is actually putting these families into really awful situations. These pictures foreground both family and, and faith. There's lots of family in, in your work going back, you know, a decade and a half. But to my eye, anyway, there are more references to faith here and religion in these pictures. Crucifixes, people praying. There is a picture of uh, that's titled, I'll read the whole title, Lisa Cartwright, service cashier, holding her father's work shirt and his Chevrolet Fisher body antique ruler inside the maintenance shop at Sweeney Chevrolet Buick GMC car dealership, Boardman, Ohio, 2019 in which she, in which Lisa Cartwright, holds her father's shirt as if it was kind of a shroud, and the ruler feels like a, a, a traditional Catholic relic. Was faith and religion something you found there, or was there broader impetus to include it in the work? Well, it was actually literally there everywhere. And what's beautiful about the United Auto Workers and going into a town like Lordstown and Mahoning and Trumbull County is you find these American values and ideals, right? This country is supposedly a Christian nation. When our presidents are elected, what do they do? They put their hand on the Bible when they're sworn in. They're supposed to serve and protect the citizens and this country, right? Our money, our currency says, in God we trust. So I just think that when you see a union like this under attack that symbolically shows the values that this country was founded on, it just shows you how much capitalism unhinged is out of control and it has no no moral compass 
And I think what I'm ultimately saying, and as these images accumulate and as the voices accumulate, is working people are very precious and valuable, right? If they're if they're the least, if they're the most vulnerable, we have to be careful how we treat them, especially if it is a Christian nation. They should come first. And I think that working people are far more important than the wealth and the riches of CEOs and and you know Wall Street, right? Why don't we value the lives of these innocent men, women, and children? who are literally giving all their labor and strength to these companies to make this country sound, right? To make this country economically viable, right? We're stepping on the people who have created the wealth and prosperity of this nation. You know, the, the other kind of major theme in this work is patriotism and and kind of going from faith to patriotism, I think makes a lot of sense given the, given, given the series. One of the real keys in the body of the work is is not just patriotism, but who gets to define patriotism. The pictures are are full of American flags and related expressions of patriotism. They, uh, as a body of work, equate labor and community building and maintaining community with patriotism. Obviously, you you made the choice in selecting the sixty odd pictures to include a number of pictures of the flag and and such. What was the origins of that decision? What, 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 how, how did you come to see patriotism as, as crucial to, to this work? Well, I think it's for me about seeing democracy. Like you'll, you can call it patriotism, but I think for me at the age of 37 to go into the union hall at local 1112 in Lordstown, I've never seen democracy in action until that day. When I was voted in and I went in there and I saw what they were doing. Now, this is a very diverse union amongst race, class, age, sexuality. It's very diverse and people just don't understand it because mass media has given this blanketed, ignorant idea that these are all simply Trump supporters and rednecks. And it's absolutely dangerously untrue. What I witnessed in there were people of all types of difference that stood together, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, hand in hand. And they stood together. They pledged that flag together. They had a moment of silence together for fallen soldiers. And they always, regardless of political association, they always refer to each other as brother and sister. That is the United Auto Workers. They are there for each other no matter what their political beliefs are. And there needs to be a real human document and record of this to dispel all of these kinds of ignorant assertions about them. The other thing that I found dangerous in terms of patriotism is, again, people were taking the social media or just talking amongst themselves. And it's even happening here at the exhibition where people walk in with a prejudice and bias, assuming that, oh, well, they deserve it. They all voted for Trump. Actually, no, they didn't. And local 1112, when you walk in that hall and you go into the president's office, it is covered with Democrats. This is the union where President Barack Obama came to visit. This is the only union where he physically came, the only president to come into the union hall there. 
he came there to announce the Chevrolet cruise. And he came in 2009. He addressed them, apologized to them about how they've been treated, talked to them about the bounce back from bankruptcy, and then announced that they would be getting the cruise as a product. One year later, there was the cruise on the assembly line. So I think Americans actually need to check themselves in terms of their assumption, their bias, and their prejudice. And that's what the exhibition is doing, right? I'm meticulously through interviews, weaving together all of these narratives of people who look very different from each other or don't fit the stereotype that people assume about working class people, connecting those and already being several steps ahead of my viewer by putting that on display. Like, this is what you thought when you were walking in here, but actually, here's the truth. I I actually had in my notes that the series of pictures reads like a rejoinder to the, quote, white working class cliche that has been so popular in the media in the last last couple of years. Yeah, I found that to be very dangerous. And it's actually something that made me spring to action. The fact that First of all, Trump and Pence would whitewash the working class. And second of all, that the corporate media would keep repeating it over and over when I know it's not true. Slaves built this country and the White House. Those are the original laborers. And then you'd have to obviously give credit to the people that actually the land belongs to, which are indigenous native people. So there's just a lot of, of, of ignorance that's used for political rhetoric that has to stop. And so this is definitely one of my ways of doing it. I mean, this is about solidarity, class consciousness, and coming together and becoming unified to lift other people up so that equality and social justice can exist for, for, for once. Along those lines, you've spoken a lot over the years over how important Gordon Parks's famous picture of Ella Watson is to you. It's a picture of a working woman with a flag behind her, of course. You know, I know that when when things are really important to us, they kind of just become like like the air we breathe and the water we drink. It just becomes a part of us. When you approach a body of work such as this, do you think consciously about having a picture or two in it that riffs or specifically addresses that parks, or does it just kind of happen sometimes? Because <laughs> it, it happens oh. here. <laughs> I'm constantly, 24-7, I see in images. Even if I don't have a camera in my mind, I'm taking a picture of you. That's 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 what I do 24-7. And when I'm in a space, especially a new location, I'm always excited because I just see in pictures. I walk in that union hall, I, I, I saw Gordon Parks. As soon as I walked in that hall, especially when I made the portrait of Lewis Robinson Jr. I mean, there he is, sitting there in all his, his regal glory, Recording secretary, you know, no longer at his union hall, 1714, because it was consolidated through bargaining and negotiations with General Motors that the collective bargaining would be reduced to 1714, joining 1112. And because Lewis Robinson Jr. is a retiree and a secretary of 1714, he no longer really has, you know, a support and structure around him. Right. And people don't realize that the retirees were left with nothing once that was consolidated. So Lewis often comes to 1112 and hangs out in the office with Dave Green or would sit doing his notes in the center of the union hall. And that portrait of him, uh, that's a day where he's sitting in the center at the table, which happened to be right in front of the American flag. So as soon as I looked at him, I was like, aha, here's my homage to Gordon Parks. American Gothic 
and Robert Frank all in one shot. Like, here it is. Here's my Americans. Here it is, right? Louis Robinson Jr. is this beautiful, handsome, veteran, union, auto worker, recording secretary, just with all of this history. And he actually happened to be one of the rare members to receive the Walter Ruther Award, which is one of the highest award because of who Walter Ruther is, is the founder of the United Auto Workers. So, you know, he's a well-decorated human being, citizen, and veteran. And I just thought how wonderful to have this, like, coupling surrogate to both Ella Watson and Robert Frank's Amer- The Americans. I also thought of this picture when you mentioned Caravaggio earlier. While Mr. Robinson's nails are impeccable, his his hand is in the, the, the near foreground of the picture. And, of course, as when you were talking of Caravaggio, I thought about how in the in the near foregrounds of so many of his pictures he was emphasizing uh, the humbleness of of his subjects by by showing us their often unwashed hands and feet in the foreground yes 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 that was big for me absolutely the dirty feet the bottoms of the feet are being upside down but also it's, it's jacob lawrence as well when we think of the wpa and the paintings and workers that's me constantly thinking about jacob lawrence work too you mentioned Mr. Robinson's uh, Distinguished Service Award, and you mentioned the political orientations of the workers. One of the pictures in the show is of Mr. Robinson's award sitting atop a hand-built display vitrine of Barack and Michelle Obama inaugural dolls. Your captions, um, while we're on art history a bit, seem to me to be probably informed by Dorothea Lange. Are they? Is she important to you? Yeah. I mean, the first two images... The two artists and two images that taught me who I could be are Dorothea Lange's Migrant Mother and Gordon Park's American Gothic. And so I, I think that the titles, for me, the way I use titles is thinking about a viewer, like say that viewer can't see the images, do the titles, you know, create an image in their mind. Like I'm constantly through words, text, titles, trying to create other images in my audience mind before they even see see that work or if they can't see it but they're just looking at that title just to get their imagination going right it's like a, a intimate internal conversation that I want my viewer to have privately in their own thoughts right so there should be like this space and tension between the title and the image or you know, a singularity and a parallel, you know, between them and them reinforcing each other. My guest is LaToya Ruby Frazier. We'll be right back after a break. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects, by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Case Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. 
To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Beatriz Gonzalez, A Retrospective, the first large-scale U.S. exhibition dedicated to the work of Colombian artist Beatriz Gonzalez. Based in Bogota, Gonzalez is not only an internationally celebrated artist, but one of the few living representatives of the radical women generation from Latin America. In one of the most comprehensive displays of the artist's work to date, Beatriz Gonzalez, a retrospective, presents more than 100 works from the early 1960s through the present that embody the full scope of Gonzalez's oeuvre, opening soon at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Beatriz-Gonzalez for more. And now back to my conversation with LaToya Ruby Frazier. I mentioned Lang, you mentioned Lawrence and, and, and Gordon Parks. You've spoken a good bit about a teacher from whom you took classes at Edinburgh University named Kathy Kowalski and how important she was to your, to your work. Kowalski made a 12-year series of pictures about her mother, as you've made an, an ongoing series of work about your mother. I am not familiar, as familiar with Ms. Kowalski's work as I am with Gordon Parks's or Dorothea Lang's. Are there one or more pictures of her mother that are as important or kind of kind of that the, the, the push you forward or that are important to you? Well, it's not that it's the images of her mother. It's Kathy herself as a human being and as a mentor. Kathy Kowalski, the whole time I was her student, she never showed her work. It was after her death when I had access to her archives, I was asked to come back and do a solo show at Edinburgh University, and I didn't want to do it unless it was a show that I could make about Kathy and her work, because she had never been given, I thought, her due in her, you know, solo show at that time that I was asked. And it was then when I went through all her slides, her boxes of just well-organized prints and notes that I really realized how much she had deeply impacted me. I mean, that's the power and a testament of a true mentor and a teacher. She never showed us her work as students. I think maybe one time she did. It was the way she taught. So, you know, Kathy devoted her entire career and practice. First of all, she's a writer. And second of all, major feminist that believed in women's place in art history and taking up space in history. But she committed her work to photographing people living in poverty in rural areas and also photographing women in prison. And then the third thing was photographing elderly people who are just kind of alienated and isolated and, of course, being given all these kind of medications until their demise. And so this is how she had a, a deep, profound impact on me. But she did it through teaching and mentoring and critiquing my work, never through showing me or illustrating me her, her own work telling me what to do. So it was quite the revelation when I saw her work and realized how much she was actually in my own work without her having ever tried to force that. You mentioned Carrie Mae Weems earlier, along with her and, and McLean Thomas. Y'all are really in the forefront of making of, of artists who are making their mothers a, a major primary focus of, of their work. Do you three talk about that, compare notes about it? Compare strategies? <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. <laughs> you, just, you just all know it's there. <laughs> yep, yep. I think that 
you know, what's, what's beautiful about women artists and artists of color, there's not that many of us. And we know that we're all collectively working to push the dial forward, but none of us actually, you know, call each other up and say, you know, this is the theme I'm working on. I think we, we see each other's work and, and, and we're in conversation with each other and we respect and admire each other. And we know, we know the stakes are high and what's important. And, you know, if it wasn't for someone like Carrie Mae Weems, I wouldn't even have the platform and the opportunities that I have today. I mean, she really is an uncompromising powerhouse that has made space for artists like Micheline and myself. Fathers, in the past, when talking about your series, The Notion of Family, uh, which is a body of work, mostly of women, you've talked about how men are present by their absence. That, for example, your grandfather died as the result of working in a labor system by which a corporation could and did exploit his labor without regard for what it or the conditions of that labor were doing to him. I I haven't done a count because that would be weird, but there are a lot of men in the new work and in the last cruise, and I think more than in previous bodies of your work. Did you find yourself thinking about men and fathers differently in this body of work than you did in previous bodies of work? No, I just think that the circumstances are different and who presents themselves and comes forth is substantially different. You know, I can't change what I was born into. Uh, the bottom line, if you were black and living in a steel mill town like Braddock, Pennsylvania, that meant that your family was dismantled. Men were under siege and under attack in, in our communities during the period I grew up. I mean, this is a malicious attack by our own state and government to remove men from the household to make women vulnerable and weak so that we relied on the state so they could then control our bodies and ultimately take our lives. We were not meant to survive that period in the 80s and the 90s when we were under siege with the drug, with the war on drugs, and then, of course, with the police attacking our communities. So, you know, that's just a different social, political circumstance, which rendered men to be invisible. But they're, they're so crucial in the notion of family. The notion of family really starts with, that's my step-great-grandfather Gramps. Right. The book launches with, you know, me being a little girl growing up in the house, taking care of him. And then he dies in the house on Thanksgiving. Right. That's how the book starts. So really, he is the symbol of the great migration. He is the symbol of our plight of migration to the industrial north, you know, and it's important to understand that emphasis. Right. My photographs are, are a marker on a historic timeline. So. Men are, are really key, especially my mother's boyfriend, Mr. Art, right? His name is Arthur, but we call him Art. And we collaborate on the images. And I make that connection about menial wage labor and the film Killer of Sheep and, and the way that, you know, being exhausted and the emotional disconnect and your life being devalued and the monotony of, of being in these factories and just not being able to be comfortable, you know, even in the intimate space at home because you're just so disillusioned with life because uh, you just don't see yourself, you know, in a, in a more powerful, valued position. That's why Killer Sheep was such an important film for me to see Stan do that when he's trying to, you know, his wife wants to dance with him in the living room and he's just so just exhausted and disillusioned. And then his daughter, you know, she looks at him and he like has that spark of hope. So I think 
when things are invisible and absent, they're actually more present than people realize, right? You know, photography is essentially a rendering of light. You're painting with light. You're making the invisible tangible. So, you know, men are at the core of the work. Men are absolutely important to my work. And my father actually is an artist and an interior designer that studied at the Art Institute in Pittsburgh. And, you know, we're very close to each other. Switching gears a bit, almost all of, of your series also feature landscapes. And I have a couple things I want to ask about that. One is uh, you've told Rujeko Hockley that your work uh, that, that you value and that your work's informed by the new topographics photographers. What what did you take from them? Oh, man, I think, yeah, you know, Robert Adams is a poet and someone who is, again, like worried about the, you know, westward expansion and going west and, you know, our way of claiming land and space and then turning around polluting and destroying it. You know, think about people like painters like Charles Schiller, right? He did, he did photography and painting and Elsie and Drake's painting of the stacks uh, in her dream, that interpretation of it, like understanding that from the beginning, painters and photographers were used by industrial capitalists to, to honor and commemorate and uphold, right, these factories and these companies, right? They were, they were being commissioned to champion them. There was no forewarning about you know, when you see EPA regulations taken away and deregulations and all of a sudden it becomes a, a toxic waste zone and industrial pollution and now it's going into the water infrastructure system and poisoning people. I mean, there there aren't images that make those connections necessarily. So landscape is like, it's the battleground. It really is. And I don't think people understand what was there at some of these industrial sites. For example, I know in Detroit lately, I have been thinking about overhearing an auto worker out of Hamtramck talking about a site there that is potentially going to be closed. General Motors initially got that land through eminent domain, and it was originally a Polish community that lived there that was displaced in order for them to put it there. And now you want to take away the jobs and abandon that industrial site, right? That's obviously contaminated. When you think about Lordstown, well, Lordstown, the town itself is really the General Motors Lordstown complex, right? It's a 6.2 square million foot facility. So when you arrive to Lordstown, that's ultimately what you see, right? Then there's the trailer park homes that sit there in one of my aerial views and then a mile over is the Lordstown High School. But really, that town is incorporated around the plant actually being there. And this is another reason why this is egregious for General Motors to abandon Lordstown and to sell off the plant. First of all, there is no other facility like this one. It has its own exit off of the Ohio Turnpike. It has its own railway system. It has its own large amounts of solar panels. There's no other company that has this large field of solar panels sitting right in front of it. And so I just think it's egregious for them to to do this, right? It's not necessary. There could be another product that could have been put in there. And I certainly still am, am hoping that something can be rectified and a solution can come where the UAW can still have employment and a new product there. But landscapes are so important because these are geopolitical battlegrounds. You mentioned that you make aerial landscapes, including in this 
series of work. There are aerial landscapes in Flint's family. There are aerial landscapes in and from the coal tips a tree will rise in despoliation of water, the gray area, and so on. Why is the aerial viewpoint one you like? Well, I think that as as human beings and as individuals, we have to learn different perspectives on our lives and our situation. In 2013, when I chartered my first helicopter, it was emotionally, mentally, psychologically, and spiritually important for me to go up in a helicopter, rise above the poverty and the situation I was in in my hometown in Braddock, realize how minuscule my life actually is to the rest of the landscape, and break the bondage of allowing this town and its history, like this bondage, the power that it had over me, right? Like you don't realize how much a neighborhood, a community, a a society, a state has a stronghold on you until you break free of it. And the only way to break free of that is to get a new perspective on it. So out of the 14 years of making the notion of family, it was only in that last year that I finally was able to get a bird's eye view that broke that bondage for me. I was not a captive to Andrew Carnegie's industrial past. I was not only, you know, that was, it was not, I was not going to only be this poor black girl from this broken community. And, and it wasn't broken in the first place. Like once I got that view, I just really saw how powerful people are that we can withstand this kind of corporate and state neglect and abuse. Right. So that empowered me to get to see it, but it also set me free. And I think it's important to go into all these other locations where people never get to get this kind of vantage point and this viewpoint so that they can see like, actually, this is how they put the Superfund site around your house. This is your proximity to where those chemicals are being dumped into the water that's coming into your kitchen sink, right? This is your proximity to the next town over where they're taking their landfill and bringing it into yours, right? giving people a chance to see where they're located is important. Like I don't travel anywhere without at this point getting in a helicopter so I can orient myself and understand where I am located in that landscape. Across your work, you foreground textual messages delivered by corporations, whether to their own workers or to the general public. A couple examples in your work are are messages from Levi's and U.S. Steel and over a series of pictures, you kind of dismantle those 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 messages and, and 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 point to how they were they were lies. Do you remember how and why corporate messaging became a burr in your saddle, if you will? How it became something you wanted to address in the work? Oh yeah, I distinctly remember. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was a uh, David Harvey, a Marxist geographer, that pulled me aside while studying at the Whitney Independent Study Program. At that time, my community was losing its community hospital in Braddock. The mayor partnered up with advertisement company Wyden and Kennedy and clothing company Levi Strauss and decided to rebrand my hometown as a new frontier, right? Here we go with landscapes again, right? And, 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 and you know, the wild, wild west and great white hope asser- assertions. And when David Harvey saw the work that I was, you know, documenting and trying to portray, how is it possible for this kind of neoliberal fantasy of of a new frontier for urban pioneers to happen 
in a, in a small town like Braddock, which isn't even a mile long, a majority of it is covered with 300 sprawling acres of, sprawling acres of the United States Steel Corporation and the Ecker Thompson plant, which is currently still polluting the town. How could those two realities exist, right? One is a fiction and one isn't. And it was important for me to make the portraits of all the elders of my community in Braddock, you know, protesting the closure of our hospital, right? That was our our heart, our lifeline, the only thing we had left. And it's sad when, when a community, it's only, you know, common ground meeting places, the hospital, because you're all dying from illnesses, from the pollution, from the plant that has been deregulated. And then for these younger folks to show up with this whole Richard Florida creative class notion of acting like they were invincible. Like, do you think that your life is going to go untouched by the pollution that's here because you're more wealthier and you have a, a Ivy League degree or a social practice degree? I don't think so. And so it was David Harvey that pointed that out to me and helped me understand it and unpack it. It was David Harvey and it was also Mary Kelly. Mary Kelly, when she saw the slogans, you know, go forth, new frontier, she's like, you know, well, why don't you change that into a question, right? Who, who gets to go forth? Go forth where? And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to be, you know, a student in that program at that time. And I specifically went to that program to study with David Harvey and Ron Clark and Martha Rossler and Alan Sokula. And Martha Rossler, when she saw the billboards, I mean, it became so infuriating for me because those billboards reached all the way to New York City, right? They were in Chinatown, Soho, and like all these young kids getting their degrees out of art school was, was thinking my hometown was the new, new on and popping place. And I'm like, actually, no. What needs to happen is we need scientists and doctors there to save people's lives. People are dying every day. Like, how can you not see this? You know, when you see young hipster artists showing up to get their little studio for one dollar saying, oh, no, I took a deep breath. It doesn't smell so bad. Are you kidding me? You can't taste or see benzene and tetrachloroethylene. But let me tell you, when you ingest it, it's giving you cancer. Like, this is not a joke. And so it was because of their observation of the work that I was able to start to, to question, decode, and deconstruct all of those advertisement campaigns. And then not only decode and deconstruct them, put the voices of the real residents that are the ones being hit the hardest on top of it. And that's how you got the photolithograph series uh, campaign for Braddock Hospital. There's a picture in your 2016 Flint is Family group of work that shows a woman fueling up a Chevy Cruze at a gas station. Had you already started or were you beginning to work toward Lordstown at that point? Or is that a coincidence? <laughs> well, this is the power of why I know what I'm doing isn't a project and it's bigger than me. I don't do anything outside of what my work tells me to do, right? When I make a photograph, I take it seriously because that is a social contract between me and that photograph. And that photograph then holds me accountable. I don't think it was a coincidence that I met Shay Cobb when I arrived to Flint to cover the water crisis and that her mother, Miss Renee, worked for a supply company for General Motors. And, and Shay's father, Mr. Douglas Smiley, retired from General Motors out of Flint. And I think 
the fact that my work speaks to me, right? My mentor, Kathy Kowalski, I, I was so afraid of not knowing what to do if she wasn't my teacher anymore. And one day she told me, she said, look, Latoya, you're going to know that you're making the right work because your work is going to start to speak back to you and it's going to start to take you places. Do what your work requires you to do. And so here I am photographing this General Motors family in the midst of a water crisis, knowing that the Flint River is polluted by General Motors, knowing that General Motors, when the Flint water crisis happened, they were the first ones to go on the news and say, hey, this, this water is so corrosive, it's eating our engine parts in Flint Assembly. Get us off this water. And what happened? The state switched General Motors to Flint Township and let their residents still be forced to consume contaminated water, right? This corporation had more basic human rights than people. And I don't think it's a coincidence that my work led me to Flint, Michigan, where the Flint sit-down strike happened. The Flint sit-down strike is the most historic and important strike to ever happen in America. If it wasn't for the Flint sit-down strike, we wouldn't have a middle class in this country. And the Flint sit-down strike, which happened in 1936, is what gave us the United Auto Workers. And it's also what caused all big three companies to begin to allow their workforce to unionize. So GM, Chrysler, and Ford. And it was because of that that we were able to have workers' rights in this country in the first place, right? If it, isn't, if it wasn't for the UAW, you wouldn't have an eight-hour workday. You wouldn't have a lunch break. You wouldn't have vacations. You would not have a seat or a voice at the table representing you. And so my work is revealing all of these historic truths. And I'm listening to it and following it and trying to be as respectful as possible using my photographs as a compass and a guide. Earlier this year, you made a portrait of uh, Stacey Abrams for, for the New Yorker magazine. As you have become more prominent, you increasingly have opportunities to take pictures for, for major media companies of, of famous people and powerful people. Have you found yourself thinking through whether that changes anything in your practice, whether uh, you approach portraits of the powerful differently for, than you approach portraits of anyone else? Uh, no, I, I, I think it's the complete opposite. You know, uh, Stacey Abrams is incredible. And we saw what happened to her. You know, she was denied something she rightfully won. And, you know, the, one of the biggest problems happening in this country around our democracy and patriotism is, you know, voting suppression. We really need her. And I actually... I'd say no to some of these commissions. I don't photograph everyone. I will turn it down if I don't believe in that person and what their message or platform is. Stacey Abrams is going to always be the first person I'm going to jump to photograph because of her fight against voter voting suppression, because of what she stands for as a woman in the South and in Georgia, because of just her humility and just this dignified regal presence and power that she has with her. Like you, you stand before her and you just believe in her, right? As soon as you get near her, you want to believe her and, and have faith in her. And the fact that she could stand against that kind of racism and brutality in the South 
and and still continue to tell her truth and fight for what's right and what's just and knowing that we need to end voting suppression in this in this country i'll photograph her any day of the week i also think it's important that someone like myself who has been a champion of 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 the disenfranchised and working class people in this country to also be photographing powerful elite people like that's that's what it's about. That's when it comes full circle. That's what it means to be human, right? We're all trying to find solutions to things that need to be rectified, like inequality and poverty and racism and institutional racism and empowering people to have a, a future in this country, you know, to really shape what democracy should look like in terms of its inclusivity and diversity. So I, I, I'm very aware and I am v- being very specific about when I'm being commissioned to photograph vocal, powerful people who I actually turn my lens on. And I think she is the perfect complementary person and figure to all of the work that I've been doing all along. So the other thing that's important about leader Stacey Abrams is there's a direct correlation to the United Auto Workers and its history, especially in terms of the UAW's participation in the civil rights movement. Like I really see Stacey Abrams as continuing the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And what's important for Americans to understand, especially when looking at The Last Cruise or my work being directly linked to the portrait of Stacey Abrams and the UAW is that in 1963, there are historic photographs that show us that Dr. King was deeply involved in close best friends and allied with Walter Ruther, the founder of the UAW. In fact, the mission of the United Auto Workers was not simply for labor history, labor rights and unions, Their other mission was about civil rights and social justice. When King was arrested in Birmingham, Alabama, and kept in solitary confinement, it was President John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy that were scrambling, trying to find a way to bail him out. Well, the people who gave the money to bail King out in Birmingham, Alabama, was the United Auto Workers, the AFL-CIO, and the United Steelworkers, they raised $160,000 to bail King out. And this is history that people don't realize, and this is why I'm making this connection. Also, when King wrote his first draft for I Have a Dream speech, it was actually written at the Solidarity House in Detroit with the UAW. And when King is about to give his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, It's Walter Ruther that's there next to him giving the opening remarks. So it's really important, you know, that we understand the real history symbolically of who the United Auto Workers have always been. They've always fought for social justice, equity, fairness, and they believe in civil rights. And so, you know, I am honored to be shooting a portrait of someone like Stacey Abrams at the same time that I'm releasing this new body of work about Lordstown and the United Auto Workers. I also love that there's a bookcase in that picture. It refers to both Abrams's biography, but also the weight of history she's taking on and challenging. Finally, I want to close by going back to 
the pictures of you and your mother, the, the 2008 double portrait and uh, a 2018 update of it, there are a number of details that um, are in, in both pictures from the importance of, of textiles and, and pattern textiles in each picture to how you aligned your face with your mother's face, which is one of the parts of your faces that you lined up was your lips with her lips, and you did it in both pictures. Why that decision? Why, why, why was that an important part of your face, if you will, to, to line up in both pictures? Well, I think that in families, generationally, you know, a child gets to be the advancement of that that parent, right? Every parent wants their child to have better opportunities than them or to be able to speak out when they couldn't. And so, you know, in an image like that, Mommy Heads 2008 and then the remake 10 years later in 2018, I'm speaking to that, right? How our knowledge is, is incomplete, imperfect, and, and fragmentary, and how we have to hold each other up and break certain cycles and patterns and histories. You know, the debts that me and my mother incurred weren't necessarily our own debts. And, you know, we had to negotiate around certain circumstances as mother and daughter, but also as comrades, as friends. And, you know, regardless of the era and the time period that she was born in and how it impacted her and how she saw herself, it was important in terms of a, a continuum of time and history that my generation, right, that the, my generation following her would be able to undo some of that, right, to be a solution to some of that, to try to push forward and to carry each other, right, through it, right? My mother and I have been through so much heartache, so much loss, so much grief. To this day, you know, my work has not saved us. You know, people often are saying, like, isn't that therapeutic? Well, no, you know, it's, it's disheartening every day when you you can turn your lens on a situation and you know what it is, right? This kind of systemic injustice that's causing a, a an environment around you that's unhealthy, unjust, and unsafe. But it, it doesn't protect you from those things, right? It's It's about what you carry internally inside your mind inside the space of these images that she and I have created together that sustain us and, and protect our relationship regardless of the outside forces that surround us. Latoya Ruby Frazier, thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.